Hey, Emily. Hey, Greg. Remember last week when we focused our attention on the exciting news that the National Hockey League would come back and potentially complete its season in the summer with an unprecedented 24-team tournament, an unprecedented playoff format, a five-game series, and a completely unpredictable and exciting conclusion to the to the season that was interrupted by the coronavirus? Not really, no. It feels like yeah, years ago. Yeah, it seems like about five years ago. Uh, coming up on ESPN and Ice today, uh, we have a long conversation with a man that has been on the show before that we much respect, Kevin Weeks of NHL Network, who it's a great conversation, man. He goes deep into his background, deep into his own experiences as a hockey player, uh, deep into his interactions with law enforcement, and uh, a really enlightening conversation that I know Emily and I both appreciated his candor on. Also, Cam Talbot of the Calgary Flames will join us to talk about the resurrection of Alabama Huntsville hockey. Uh, he, of course, being their most famous alumni. Uh, very, very cool conversation there. All that more on this edition of ESPN on Ice. So let's start the show proper, shall we? From the ice to your earbuds, a podcast about hockey, featuring things to do with hockey. From your friends at ESPN, it's ESPN on Ice with Wachinski and Kaplan. It's ESPN on Ice, the podcast where ESPN talks about hockey and hockey-adjacent things. My name is Greg Wyshynski, and I am the senior NHL writer. I'm Emily Kaplan. I'm a national NHL reporter. We are going to get to some uh, return-to-play stuff in the second segment um, because there is some news to talk about insofar as the player reaction to the playoff format and things like that that it's happened since we last joined you. Uh, but obviously, the topic of conversation to begin the show is the league's reaction, the player's reaction, the sport's reaction to the killing of George Floyd um, in Minneapolis, the protests uh, that have followed in its aftermath, and uh, the larger discussion about uh, racial injustice and inequality in our society. Um, Emily, I'd say the conversation was probably started in the hockey community last Friday when Evander Kane appeared on First Take on ESPN and uh, had this to say. You know, we need we need so many more athletes that don't look like me speaking out about this, having the same amount of outrage that I have inside, and 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 using that to voice their opinion, to voice their frustration, because that's the only way it's going to change. We've been outraged for hundreds of years, and 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 nothing's changed. Uh, you know, it's time for guys like you know Tom Brady and Sidney Crosby and 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 those type of figures to speak up about what is right and, and, and clearly in this case what is unbelievably wrong because that's the only way we're going to actually create that unified anger to create that necessary change, especially when you talk about systematic racism. Uh, Evander Kane's comments led to teammate Logan Couture uh, having a very heartfelt message posted to social media on Friday, and that really got things rolling, I think. Now we had Blake Wheeler... Uh, we had just scores and scores of players, well over two dozen players, more than that, uh, that have uh, put their put mind to uh, to Notepad on their phones and posted it to social media. Huge stars like Austin Matthews talking about his own uh, background as a uh, Mexican American. Uh, Steven Stamkos came out with a message today. Alex Ovechkin even chimed in briefly um, with some. With a very, but the thing about Ovechkin and statements is that you could always tell that he's the one who writes them, uh, with a lot of exclamation points and emojis. 
so a lot of a cross section of players, and then of course the teams, as every business <clears throat> in society has done, pretty much for the last uh, seventy two hours, also released their statements. In some cases, it was just teams signal boosting their players. Um, in other cases, it was teams putting out statements of their own. As we do the show on Tuesday, uh, there is only one National Hockey League team that has not signal boosted its own player nor put out a statement of its own on the killing of George Floyd or the protests or racial injustice, and that would be the New York Rangers. If you've been following the news, you know that's coming down from the top on that issue. But everybody else, the last one I think that we were looking at in our sort of informal tracking of it was the Detroit Red Wings and they came out with well it was a statement uh today on Tuesday. So Emily, what is your uh what is your view on everything that's transpired in the last week? To be honest, I've grappled with what we should expect for hockey from hockey and what we can expect from hockey. And you know, I say this with the full disclosure that it's a predominantly white sport. I'm a white woman, you're a white man. And we're doing this conversation a week after Akima Lu came out and, and talked about the racism that still exists currently in the sport. And so part of me feels like speaking out right now or seeing hockey teams speak out right now is just performative, to be quite frank. And there's calls for them to put out a statement just to put out a statement. And they'll say the things they're supposed to say, and sometimes they do bungle it. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean change unless it's sustainable. And like, let's not forget that when Akima Lou went on the Today Show, the NHL PR staff put out a statement that said, we really appreciate Akima Lou sharing all the experiences of racism that he experienced in youth hockey and minor league hockey, full stop. And ignoring the fact that he's talking about the racism that existed in their own league. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am excited to talk to Kevin Weeks because for me, this is my personal view. I'm not counting on anyone to say anything who is white. I am in full on listening mode. I'm being compassionate. I'm trying to figure out how I can be more supportive. Um, but I also have to understand that we're at a really crucial time. And yes, it is important for some leaders to speak out and organizations to speak out because that's what fans could listen to and say, hey, if the Detroit Red Wings do it, then maybe I will. But at the same time, I don't know if if these are the people we should be expecting it from. We should be listening right now to black people who have been oppressed. Yeah. And so a couple things. Um I know that the Rangers thing is is a James Dolan bit, but honestly, anyone who's ever been around that franchise would understand that they would, like I said to Weeks, they're like the last team that you'd expect to say anything about the cops. <laughs> the cops are very much a part of the Rangers experience. Awards the Rangers give out are named for cops. Um, and that's fine. I mean, that's life. And players, I think, are in, in the same way, respectful of, of law enforcement for the role that law enforcement plays in their own lives and within their own safety, within their own bubble. And so I think a lot of the statements that came out while, like Emily said, were performative and, and dealing with all of the words that you'd expect them to deal with when it comes to racism and violence and in some cases going as far to say that Black Lives Matter – um, you had a couple in the Islanders and the St. Louis Blues that were very complimentary to law enforcement, and you had literally none that talked about law enforcement's role in the killing of George Floyd, which I think was a, a big problem for a lot of people and a big reason why a lot of people weren't really all enthusiastic about the NHL teams lining up to make statements. Um, 
So I don't know how you untangle that. We talk about that with weeks a little bit, but, uh, but that's one issue. The other issue is that, um, in reading all of the player statements, you get the sense that they care in a lot of ways. You get the sense that they're receptive in a lot of ways. And you get the sense that they'd like to change things in a lot of ways. But you also get the sense that they don't know how. And they don't know what mm. to do. And they don't have guidance on that. And in some ways, maybe the NHL needs to be more emphatic with its relationship to people of color in trying to give players the tools, let's say, to figure that out, to dedicate their times to different programs, to work with different groups, to better understand how they can broaden the tent of hockey. Um, but at the same time, I also think that it is sort of problematic. I, don't know, I hate that word, but I'm going to use it anyway. Problematic that there's not enough attention to get their own house in order first. That's the first thing you can do is get your own house in order. You know, if you're in the National Hockey League, you could by now come down with a ruling that says Bill Peters can't coach here for X number of years. Um, if you're the National Hockey League, you can come down much harder on incidences of, of racism in the sport or sexism or, or, or prejudice of any kind. Um, if you're USA Hockey, you can read the comments when you put out a statement about the protests and the killing of George Floyd and you read all the comments that are pointing at one of your employees having famously used the N-word and still being employed in a capacity where he's supposed to reach out to different communities. So it's not even that get, he's an employee. John Van Beesbrook is one of the top executives at USA yeah, Hockey. Right. He's one of their forward-facing figures. Right, to go into the community and try to recruit people. And so John Van Beesbrook used a slur very famously. He's still hired. But at the time of his hiring, it was called out. It's still being called out. He's still employed there. And so I think the, le- the, le- the lesson there is get your own house in order. You want the moral high ground. You want to affect change. You want people to look at your organization and say, yeah, I want my son or daughter playing hockey. Get your own house in order. Don't have that guy working for you. Don't tolerate this nonsense. And if you are tolerating it, if you do support this person and everybody in your sport is pointing at you and saying your statement's a joke because you don't have your own house in order, listen to them. Like, it's real easy. So I think the first step towards anything, the first step towards affecting any kind of change here is looking inward and figuring out what you could do in your own space and in your own business and in your own industry to try to incrementally change stuff. And we talked for weeks about that too, about hiring practices and things of that nature as well. But like, as these players struggle, like, I know it's a big picture and and we all feel very small right now because the world is kind of spinning out of control. But you can kind of grab the world and stop the rotation for a little bit if you just look inward and figure out what in your world can change. Yeah, and I, I think I'll leave it at this. I don't think any of you need to hear from me on this issue. Maybe not Greg. Um, I think we just need to listen to the people who it's affecting. So I'm really looking forward to welcoming Coven Weeks on next, and you guys can listen to him. All right, joining us now on the line, a uh, friend of the show and a lead analyst for NHL Network, uh, Kevin Weeks, former NHL netminder, former proud member of the New Jersey Devils, uh, joining us now on the line. And uh, Kevin... Obviously, we'd be remiss to not start the conversation with your thoughts on everything that's happened in the last week, the killing of George Floyd, the reaction, the protests, 
and uh, and really anything else that falls under that umbrella. What's uh, what's been your reaction to all of this? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, first and most foremost, I appreciate that. Uh, I would also say that you know deepest condolences to George Floyd and his family, their family, um, also the gentleman that was also needlessly murdered in Louisville, Kentucky, who was a chef. I uh, just saw that news come out. 53 years old, owned a barbecue joint, chef, owner, operator, and evidently had fed a lot of uh, police officers and law enforcement officials, oftentimes for free, and different members of his community down there in Louisville, Kentucky. So uh, deepest condolences to him. And, you know, it's what's so difficult right now is now this is a this is really a global issue, although it's it's been highly centralized here, or so people think, here in the U.S., here in the United States. But I look at it as being a global issue, without question. And you know, I know from from my background, it's pretty interesting because my parents are from Barbados in the Caribbean, and my dad didn't even want to leave his own island, their own island, when you know he was working on a plantation. He worked on Applewood's plantation in Barbados. He didn't want to leave. He was an overseer on the plantation. He didn't want to leave. He drove a Land Rover. He ran the plantation and they had West Indies record label, which was a record factory at the back of the plantation and sugar, a whole bunch of other crops. And he didn't want to leave and move to North America. And my mom convinced him to leave after they got married and they came to Canada and they started a new life there. For that, I'll always be grateful to Canada. I'm always grateful to my ancestral home that is Barbados. I'm very grateful to the United States. This is home for us again for a second time and for the foreseeable future. But specifically, if I start in the Canadian part of it, you know, what was hard is growing up in Toronto, for a lot of people that may or may not have been there, it's it's hyper multicultural. It's very multicultural. People from every different background. I grew up with my minor hockey teammates that were all from different uh different parts of the world their parents are from different parts of the world that is so jewish greek italian russian portuguese um at the time yugoslavian fellow caribbean you name it there are so many different so many different backgrounds so many different backgrounds so that was my experience Mm. and at the same time at the same time what was interesting about that was the higher up i got in hockey it was not as much of a problem when I was younger. My family and I were my family and I were treated so properly. Mm. But the higher up I got in hockey, the more of a factor race started to become. And then I started realizing that for me, I was walking over I was walking over Niagara Falls with a tightrope and no safety net, literally. Mm. As a black goalie, as a black goalie specifically, and you know, uh, as I say, a lot of times people in Canada will say, people in Canada will say, oh well, that's an American problem. They couldn't be any further from the truth. You know, I, I'd i be going to the rink, and I could name the different rinks. I could name the different rinks. Malvern Arena, Aaron, Rills, Aaron Mills Twin Rink, East, Ice Sports Scarborough, Ice Sports Etobicoke, Meadowvale Arena, and I'd have my goalie pads and, uh, and my two sticks and my goalie bag. And next thing you know, cops pull me over. Woo-woo-woo. Hey, uh, is this your vehicle? Jesus. Can we see the license registration? Uh, sure. Yeah, is this your car? Are you the owner? Yeah, sure. Yes, sir. So in having that, 
20 times, maybe, mm. going to wow. the rink to work on my game as a pro. Minimum 20 times. And in a few instances, you know, depending on what vehicle I was driving, if they could see my goalie pads or, you know, whatever, NHL bag, I don't know, Florida Panthers, Carolina, I played different teams, Carolina Hurricanes, whatever. Oh, you're Weeks. Oh, yeah, you're the goalie. Oh, oh man, why don't you come and play for the Leafs? <laughs> what? That's awful. Like, so, so for me, that started to become a thing. And, you know, get pulled over, same thing, leave the rink or leave dinner downtown. Hey, uh, we noticed that your tints are really dark. Like, well, yeah, I've got Florida plates. I play in Tampa. Yeah. Yeah, but they're really, really dark. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's, next thing you know, write me up a ticket. I'm like, sir, I live in Tampa. I play for Tampa. I don't live in Toronto. I'm just here for the off season, part of the off season. Well, I don't know, but uh, you're here. You're here in Ontario now, so uh, yeah, we got to give you a ticket. Wow. So that's the kind of stuff. Just like off the hop. Yeah. You know, being being a young player and a young professional that's living his dream, that's a law-abiding person from a great family background. And why is that a problem? I'm going to work. <laughs> like, I'm an NHL guy. I'm going to work. You guys say that hockey means everything in that country specifically. And sporting-wise, for the most part, we're a one-trick pony, save for my boy, you know, the great Donovan Bailey, Olympic double gold in 96, men's 4 by one and men's 100-meter fastest man on the planet until Usain, and save for the Raptors last year. And, you know, the Blue Jays for the two years, but... By and large, for the most part, we've been a one-trick pony for sports, and it's hockey. So the fact that I played a sport that they identify with the most, but yet still people were weird around it and kind of odd and awkward, and then certain media people, for example, would call me Steve on purpose. Steve, Steve what happened on that goal? Looked like you left your five-hole open there. <laughs> who's, who's Steve? <laughs> <laughs> I know Steve Weeks. You guys don't even know him because his dad was a principal at Silver Springs Public School back home in Scarborough in Toronto. And Anthony actually went to Silver Springs, and he was his principal. And so did my cousin. So I don't know why you're calling me Steve Weeks, but, you know, that's the kind of stuff, especially when you knew it was intentional. So those are the kind of things where it was weird, and I'll tell you guys this too, like even my parents – to this day, I'm a 45-year-old. To this day, my parents, my mom specifically, be careful. Mm. Be careful. Keep your head on. Be careful. You know you're black. Be careful. You got to be careful out there. Like, why would a mom have to say that? Like, aside from parenting and moms will always be moms and, and that sort of thing. But think about that. Like, I've heard that since I was a kid. Yeah. And what's crazy is so many of those things that my mom said or that my dad tried to pass on where that stuff is concerned. What's crazy is they actually came true. So as you know, our parents always get smarter. The older we get, the smarter they get, <laughs> it seems. But those are the types of things. You know, this past year, my parents were harassed at an airport. We were traveling to see family, harassed okay. at an airport by so-called law enforcement. Wow. You know, there's so many, my mom at a grocery store. So those are the types of things. From my experience, I got so many messages from so many people honest to god and some of the best players the nhl's ever seen current superstars too former superstars current hall of famers future hall of famers and people in general like different roles that texted me that were kind enough to text me 
Um, wish you're one of them. So thank you. But so many different men and women around the game that took the time to text or send me a message. And I got to tell you, what was even more overwhelming is fans that I never even met in my life, the people I've never met. And their support is so meaningful. All of your support is so meaningful because, as mentioned, I've been walking over Niagara Falls on a tightrope with no safety net yeah. and no margin for error. None. So forget the fact of trying to stop a puck. But anything you do, you know that there's people that are going to be like, see, that's why. See, that's why we don't want those guys on our team. That's why we don't want, to want one of them on our squad. No way. Nope, we don't want them on our team. That type thing. So, you know, you've always had to. And again, as I said, fortunately, I have great parents that raised me old school and, you know, old world values and stuff and treating people properly and being mannerly and being decent and all that stuff. But what's hard is when people want to justify certain decisions. Uh, you know, when people want to justify certain decisions based on how they feel to treat or not treat you, then if, if and or when you say something, then you're bad. Yeah. Then they'll say, oh, this guy's a bad apple. You know, he, she, she's a bad apple. Like, I don't mean, I, you can't be the perpetrator of something you shouldn't do. Then you want to dictate. Yep. Oh, no, no, no. Go on, go on. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, yeah no worries. No, I was going to say, you can't be the perpetrator of what you shouldn't be doing to mistreat somebody. Then on top of that, then you want to determine how they feel. Then on top of that, you want to determine how they respond. And then number four, if they don't respond how you want them to, which is usually by not saying anything, then you're mad at them. Like, that's not normal behavior. So it's, it's been a real interesting time. Very, very interesting time, guys, to start it off. Yeah. Well, no, I'm just curious, what would you like to see from the hockey community right now? Because it is a predominantly white sport. And I think for me as a white woman, I've been spending a lot of this time reflecting on how I can be more compassionate and more supportive. But we're also coming at a time, this is a week after Akeem Alou published this incredible essay where he detailed his experiences of racism in the sport. And I'm curious because we've seen so many teams and players put out statements, but Sometimes I roll my eyes at some of them. I'm like, this feels performative or this feels like it's just, you know, Shallow. putting something out to say something. Exactly. What, yeah. what do you think is meaningful right now? What do you think is authentic? Um, what you'd like to see from the hockey community? Okay. You learn being a team player, right, in hockey. Mm-hmm. You learn being accountable. Be accountable. Okay. You learn be dependable. Be dependable. Okay. You learn... Um, Hey, the puck went in or it didn't go in. The black puck on a white egg. They used to say all the time, just stop the puck. Okay, you stop the puck or you don't. It goes in or it doesn't. So why, when those things are so basic and they're basic tenets of the game, why then when it comes to this and somebody says something they shouldn't, somebody does something they shouldn't, why would somebody then say, for example, that's, that's not fair, like we didn't hear that. How could everybody not hear that? Like, what do you mean you didn't hear that? Everybody heard it or everybody saw it. So I think it's the same great values of the sport that we learn and that we live. Just apply them to people one-on-one and be empathetic and be decent and be compassionate and just treat people with respect and don't feel that you're superior because you're from a farm because I'm tired of that narrative, because as I said, my dad worked on a plantation on his own island, so I don't want to hear about it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Don't right? say that somebody's better, right? Don't say that. Right. There's, it's only, it's, there's only there's only Canadian farms. You know that. There's no yeah, farms. exactly. And don't say that somebody's <laughs> better, right? That's so true. And don't say that somebody's better because um, I don't know they're from Winnipeg than Austin Matthews is from Arizona. That's not that's not normal. But to, but Kevin, to drill down on it though. Like you have teams, most teams. I think there might be only sure. like one or two right now that haven't made a comment yet. A lot of the comments are are cookie cutter. Some of them mention cops, some of them don't. Um, sure. But like, I think that what I've heard from a lot of uh, people of color that follow hockey uh, in the last couple of days is a real concern that these are empty statements. And, and is there any like specific action that you'd like to see these teams take beyond these statements? Um, that yeah. you haven't seen from them that you think could help? Start by being real. Okay. Let's just be real. Like, that's, hockey's a real sport. You know what I mean? There's no, like, powder puff. It's not phony. You can't fool the players. Players know. The players are the product. But be real. Because hockey's real. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, you deflected that puck up into the netting, or you didn't. Shoot, <laughs> that guy beat me clean, blocked side. But he didn't beat the post, so it's posting out instead of posting in. Like, those are facts. That's not subjective. So be real. Like, the facts are the facts. So whether it's me, whether it was Wayne Simmons, whether it's Austin Matthews, who's Mexican-American and born in California and raised in Arizona, like, there were some people in Toronto that didn't want to give Austin Matthews his due because he wasn't Canadian-born. Like, what are you saying? He's the best rookie in the history of the franchise Mm. to date. And they're an original 16. And he's on track to be the best player that's ever played for them. You know the players that have played for that team? The great Matt Sundin in this, you know, certain era or generation, if you will. The great Doug Gilmore. Like, I can go up and down. Forget, like, the great Dave Keon and all those players. Like, he could go down, I mean, at least from a skill standpoint. Obviously, they're trying to win a cup. It's been a long time since 67. I'll tell you that for free, being from Toronto. But all that to say, like... They didn't really want to give him his due, even in the media. Oh, well, he's kind of lazy. Oh, well, well, he's not a 200-foot guy. It was all these different things. Just say that he's Mexican-American, you don't want to say it. Hmm. So don't give me all this hot talk. Next thing you know, he's not really on the power play. Then Babcock doesn't really have him on the power play. Then he's on the second unit power play. Then it's this, then it's that. No. Like, be real. Hockey's a real sport. So specifically, I want to see people be real. You're real about other things. Be real. Hey, you know what? This is a problem. Hey, you know what? We do have qualified women. Uh, we do have qualified transgender people. We do have qualified people of color. We do have qualified Americans that are born in different parts of the state. We do have qualified Jewish people. We do have qualified Russian Americans. We do have qualified Italian Americans. And let's just put the best people in the position, like Nick Saban says. My job is to get the best people on the bus and put them in the right seat and get the wrong people the heck off the bus. Hmm. And that's it. And if you have knuckleheads, get them out of there. Root them out. You're gone. It's a three-year ban. It's a lifetime ban as a managerial person or coach. You're out. You mean like, like, like in a Bill Peters situation? Yes, bye. And if you are hmm. uh, a fan, bye. There's a lot of fans that are lining up that want to go watch the Rangers or the Devils or the Kings or the Ducks or whoever it is, Winnipeg Jets or whatever. If you're at your place at work, and I've had this numerous times, 
And ironically, Philly being one of them. And I love Philly, but I had this a lot of times. Why are you cheering for Allen Iverson? You're booing Donovan McNabb, but you're still cheering for him. Hmm. But you're cheering for Allen Iverson, but now you're, you're, you're yelling racial epithets at me behind the bench. Hmm. And now then you're going to come after Wayne Simmons comes and you're going to cheer for Wayne Simmons? I, I mean, those are the types of things. So from a league standpoint and from a team standpoint, and some of the teams have done outstanding work. And I'll be very – the Rangers, for the most part, during my time there, they've been a little bit too silent for me, and this lasted a while. But in my time there, the Rangers are always up front and center and have done a lot of stuff. The Oilers, for years, under the great Glenn Sather, although he stepped back in the hole with the, with the Rangers now. But Glenn Sather, back in the day with the Oilers, they were ahead of the curve. They always had different players of different backgrounds. He always had black players, Russian players, like different European players, excuse me, American players, it didn't matter, Canadian players. Same thing with the Oilers now. They have different players of different backgrounds. i got to say, they've always had that, and I really applaud that. But some of the teams, okay, we don't want a black goalie, okay, we don't want this guy. And then the GMs are going to say, well, we'll take whoever we want that's going to stop the puck and we're going to get the best guy. But that's not always the case. Yeah. So I'd like to see an open-mindedness of getting great players in different roles, great people that are players, same thing with your front office staff, same thing with your, you know, whatever, your managerial staff, your scouting staff, your hockey development, whatever it is. You know, we have a lot of different, I just got off the phone with the great Ron Francis who called to check in and see how I'm doing with Seattle. You know, Cammy Granado's on their staff and they have different people of different colors and different genders, different orientation on their staff. So I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a believer in filling quotas, but I like expanding your pool as wide as possible so it's inclusive as possible, and then you take the best candidates from said expanded pool. Well, that leads me exactly to my next question, Kevin, because mm. I think a lot of this unrest and frustration um, has opened my eyes to institutional bias. And the truth is there totally. needs to be rep- representation in hockey. And yes, it is important. It's important to have black coaches. It's important to have black GMs, black team presidents, eventually black owners, I hope, of course. But we haven't gotten to that point. What things can be done? Do we need to institute some kind of Rooney rule to ensure that people are at least getting foots in the doors for interviews? Can we create mentorship programs, internships? Like, what would you like to see? Because let's be frank, there hasn't been a ton of progress in the last couple decades. It's a great question. Again, you guys are hitting all the high notes. I would say this. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I was the first black broadcaster in 91 years in NHL history. Wow. And I would love to be the first team president, black team president in what are we now? Hundred two, hundred two, hundred three years of NHL history. And if you're asking me what that needs to look like, I can tell you that, you know, it starts with support from Gary and Bill who I've been extremely impressed with and been fortunate to develop a great relationship. They've been great with me on my playing days to now and TV and, you know, being the face of the league network and, being an ambassador for the league and speaking at the White House or on Capitol Hill and these different things, advocating on behalf of the league. Um, I'm a big fan of theirs, and they've been very supportive of me, and they, they know that I have some of those aspirations. And in addition to them, because obviously, you know, they're at the top of the food chain, so to speak, but in addition to them, it, it also takes support from the likes of a Bill Foley, who's done the, like, a perfect job as the owner of the Vegas Golden Knights, every stroke that they've made has almost been perfect so far in how to run a franchise, 
how to engage fans, how to grow grassroots, grassroots hockey, how to encourage, you know, adult women and men to play rec hockey um, from their branding to their community outreach to now buy an AHL team, relocating it, building an AHL rink, facilities, practice facility, community, you name it. So somebody like him, who has been a big advocate of mine, as an example, the great Lou Lamorello, who I played for, who's been a big advocate. Um, the great Jim Rutherford, as an example. The, I don't want to leave anybody out. The great uh, Glenn Sater, as an example. You know, those are three GMs that I played for. How many rings do they have between them? <laughs> so for me, I think with the help of them and the support of them, uh, in addition to Commissioner Bettman or Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly, I think that's really important. And other people like the great Luke Robitaille, you know, and other power brokers, be it, you know, Pat Brisson or my agent Paul Theofanis, who has Panarin and Bobrovsky and Varlamov and those guys. It, it takes those people to champion, to champion somebody the way they did for other guys, the way they did for Shani and the way they did who I played with, the way they did for Bill Guerin in a GM role and the way they've advocated for other people. So it will definitely take that. And, you know, for me, the, the fit would have to be right because I love the craft of media. I love television specifically. I love that platform. I love the visual medium, and I, I, I treat it like I did playing. But I, what it would take to be able to, uh, what it would take to, to be able to see someone of color in that role or see a non-traditional person, uh, a lady, you know, somebody from the LGBTQ community, whatever the case may be, it takes an open-mindedness and it takes advocacy and support and continued advocacy and support. Cause not to say that it's been absent of that. Cause I mentioned all the people that have been very big supporters of mine right. and I'm very grateful to them, but it will take them and more people like them to continue advocating. Because I think that as a pro sport, people need to see that, you know, and I think it's empowering and not just limited to, and Emily, you can kind of speak to that. Look at your role. I watched you on sports center mm -hmm. the other day. I saw your hit. You did an outstanding job. I see the great Linda Cohen on there. She's, she's a goat. She's one of the goats in broadcast. <laughs> she really is. You know what? Right. You know, the great Hannah storm, they're goats and they're not just goats for you because you lie in the same uh, line of gender as they do, but they're goats for me too. Cause I grew up watching them. I grew up watching the NBA as much as I did the NHL, of course, too. I'm a Jordan head. So I grew up watching them and it's been fortunate. It was amazing for me during the world cup of hockey in 2015, I believe it was, that's flown by so fast, and working for ESPN to be able to work alongside Linda Cohn. I grew up watching LC. You know, I obviously got to know her during my time in the NHL and stuff and her being a fellow goalie. But that's huge. And it's not just huge for young girls and young women, because it is. But it's huge for our sport in general to see her or yourself or wish yourself in your category, breaking through in your category to do all the great things you're doing. So it's important for people to be able to see a broad spectrum of, uh, of people that are best in class or, you know, tops in class or among the best in the world at what they do. And I think it gives our sport not only more legitimacy and more credibility because we have an incredible sport, but I think it really amplifies and it speaks to the questions, the last three questions you guys asked me. It speaks to those questions because then it's action. Right. Mm -hmm. And then people can say, you can go on with Stephen A. Smith and you say, hey, man, you know, Emily, blah, blah, blah. He's talking to you or wish you're the inside. What, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? 
Or, okay, well, we can from the NHL network. You know, whatever. He's facing the NHL network. I didn't know we had a brother there. Or whatever it is. Or he's running a team and he's a president. Or, hey, Anson Carter's on NBC Sports and MSG. You know, whatever it is, that broader spectrum of representation, not by way of complementary, not by way of corporate social responsibility or CSR, but by way of acknowledging that expanded pool of them being a part of the best of the best or us pre- being a part of the best of the best. I appreciate that, that what you said. I, I, I like to my, think of myself as uh, a, a representation of pudgy ex-bloggers, so I'm happy to uh, <laughs> play that role. Hey, we. I'm gonna what, call what? your agent. I'm gonna call your agent because your agent is jam you up for saying that. Go ahead. <laughs> one la- one last thing for me, man. You mentioned sure, no at the, at the so. beginning of the conversation about um, yeah. getting stopped on the way to practice and and stuff like that. And and yeah, you know, part part of the untangling of everything that's happened in the last you know week and a half or so is is that relationship between National Hockey League teams and the police. I mean, like for example. Uh, you know, the, there's photos that teams have had that they've deleted uh, off their social media feeds of, of guys yep. with Blue Lives Matter flags. There was yep. all kinds of stuff. And, and, you know, one of the reasons why I'm sure there's been some nuance, for example, you mentioned the Rangers. I mean, there's I can't think of another team in this league that's more tied in with its local police department than the New York Rangers. Sure. Um, and I'm sure it's a very uncomfortable situation to have the killing of George Floyd be obviously a police action. And then how sure. do you go about discussing that while also trying to respect that relationship? And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on, on that sort of entanglement between teams, yeah. police, in many cases, military, and then also the issues that we're all talking about in the last week. That's a great one. So let me start with the police because my uncle was the head of Toronto Undercover Drug Squad. And wow. after my post three days ago, specifically, it was the same post from Twitter and Instagram that, was, that went to my Facebook and he wrote a long, a long kind of comment on there. And he talked about being in the force, which he still is now a staff sergeant. And he talked about being in Toronto Metro, Toronto Police Force, and having run the drug squad and been on the drug squad and everything else and still active today. And he talked about some officers not running, not wanting to ride in the squad car with him. Well, so. If you can imagine going, if you've ever seen Drugs Inc. on TV, and if you can imagine going to a trap house or a safe house or, you know, a, I don't know, a 22-floor old-school building or going into, you know, a, disempo- a disenfranchised neighborhood and having to shake somebody down or do a sting or do an op or do a bust or whatever it is, and you've got people that don't want to work with you because of the color of your skin, like, you think that person has your back? Yeah. Like, that's, you know, so that just kind of puts that in perspective. But in saying that, him aside, there are different law enforcement officials that are awesome and that do great work. And I can't discredit everybody. My parents always say you can't paint everybody with the same brush. So there are a lot of men and women in the force that do do that do great work and that have gone into burning buildings and that have responded to crazy house calls and put themselves in harm's way. So I don't want to discredit all of them either because there are a lot of them that do great work. And, you know, a lot of them, do serve and protect us. The knuckleheads serve themselves and don't protect us. So where that's concerned from a police standpoint and from a relationship standpoint with, with local clubs, local clubs have to start by acknowledging the fact that 
there's a problem and there have been some problems in law enforcement. And for an example, at an NHL club, a, we, first of all, want to acknowledge that there is a problem with members of law enforcement. And we know that we have it here in our city. We're not naive enough to think that doesn't happen. And we're going to be very selective just as we are with our players we're going to go through hyper-screenings with the law enforcement officials that we choose to work our venue or to protect our players and our staff members and their families. You know, we can't always get it perfect because we know that, you know, perfect is an aspiration. It's not always a reality for certain things, especially because there's so much fluidity, right? But in variables and, you know, it comes down to people one-on-one and it's not always, if, the per- if everything was perfect, everybody would draft the perfect player at the perfect time for the perfect reasons. And that's impossible to do. So, but in saying that, we will be a lot more diligent and a lot more deliberate in the people that we select to work with us, to work for us, to lead with us and police our fans to keep ensure, them, ensure their safety and that of our staff and our players and our city in and around our venue. That would be the one thing. I would then say from that point, by, by acknowledging that, then action that. Don't just say that you're getting an undercover cop because you're an undercover cop. Vet them. Vet her. Vet them. Vet them. Do a great job vetting them. And then by doing that, at least you, you're consciously trying to select the best of the best, right? And you're trying to eliminate the knuckleheads, as I said before. So that would be one thing. As far as the military, I mean, you guys have probably heard me. In most interviews I do, I always give a shout-out to the men and women in the armed forces because they put themselves in harm's way, and without them, there's no us. I have a lot of friends, you know, that serve here in the U.S. My cousin served in Canadian. I have another cousin that served in British Armed Forces. And, you know, I was just texting with one of them the other day, uh, Joel Bowser, who's a big hockey fan, Red Wings fan, and had his leg, his leg amputated above the knee, no, above the knee, so that he can use his prosthesis to be able to skate. He still plays men's league, and he works at the Pentagon. Wow. Um, you know, when I think of, I've gone to Walter Reed, I've seen the Wounded Warriors, himself included. You know, I played in Tampa. I've been to McDill numerous times. I've been to the Pentagon to see Joe Bowser numerous times. I've been to Fort Bragg when I played in Carolina. And when I think of what those families go through and the ultimate sacrifice and what they do to protect us and ensure our freedoms, I mean, those are the real MVPs and the real superheroes, right? Kevin, so well said, man. We wanted to have you on. We wanted to listen, and uh, you bought it as per usual. And uh, thanks for the time, man. I think the listeners uh, really appreciate your views, appreciate all your views you've had over the years on sensitive subjects and not being afraid to address them. And uh, we're honored to have you on the show today, man. Appreciate you, you both. So Keep up the great work. Yeah, thank you. Um, you as well, Emily. Thank you, too. And really appreciate you guys having the platform because, you know, there's – I don't know if I can count my whole playing career professionally at 14 pro, but 11 in the league. I was silenced. Like I didn't feel like I could say anything in a safe, even safe, respectable, um, constructive way and, and way that's collaborative and not necessarily seen as being corrosive because sometimes ears are so hypersensitive, as you just said, around this topic. So, yeah. Um, I appreciate you guys, man. Thank you guys so much. Thanks to all the great listeners. We appreciate all the NHL fans and all of them that watch you guys on ESPN and read you guys on ESPN and watch us on the NHL network and that uh, tune into my lives, my IG lives at Kev Weeks. Really appreciate you all, man. Thanks so much. 
Thank you so much, Kevin. Hockey, so lucky to have you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you both. Have a great day, guys. Our thanks to Kevin Weeks uh, and his comprehensive thoughts on all the things that are happening in the world right now. Of course, that's not all the things that are happening in the world right now. We still have a global pandemic. So uh, the National Hockey League, of course, announced its return to play uh, format last week. Uh, everybody was very excited about it. And then the heavy lifting would have to start, which is to figure out how to pull it off. And Emily, that means first and foremost, testing people to figure out if they're infected with COVID-19 and trying to secure these training facilities and hub locations uh, from it. What, what is going on right now when it comes to the next steps of this plan? Firstly, I just have to say, I don't understand how when Gary Bettman comes out in his big day on Tuesday, May 26th, Gary Bettman Day, where we'll always remember it as, and lays out everything, and he mentions we're going to be testing players every evening. And, like, that's part of the announcement. And then, like, a week and a half later, all of a sudden you see news stories that are like, the NHL plans on testing players daily. Holy cow. Yes, like, they've said this. And, and, and like, our news site ran a separate news story about it. And um, I think a lot of leagues turned their eyes and said, holy cow, that's what they're going to have to do to start up. Because um, I don't think the NFL has from what I understand, even consider testing players daily, but um, that is what it is. And, you know, one thing I do find interesting is to my knowledge, the NHL currently has not found a partner like Major League Baseball did in that lab facility where they said, hey, we're going to mm. procure this amount of tests and we're also going to provide this amount for the public. The NHL is like, we know it's expensive and we're just going to fund it. And we believe that they'll be ethically available for by then. And that's that. Interesting. Um, yeah. What is interesting, though, and, and this is where I think we stand with the NHL, is we had this really exciting day with all these news, but we're also with the caveat that players now have to sign off on essentially everything moving forward, and right. that everything moving forward needs to be negotiated. So while it's all great that we have this plan, what it is is just a plan, and you're starting to see some players, and Anton Strawman was a really prominent voice in The Athletic on uh, Monday, had a great article, um, who were saying, hold up. I'm starting to see what this is look like, and I don't know if this is all worth it. Right. Yeah, he said, there are many ways to look at this thing. I know everybody wants hockey back, but safety has to come first, and it's a little bit worrisome. I can't deny that. Even though most players are young and healthy, I'm sure there are players like me that have underlying health issues. I don't know how my body will react if I get the virus. And I think that's a big thing. I mean, we know we know these guys from their scouting reports. We know these guys from uh, you know, their, their public persona. We know a lot about them, but we don't know everything about them. We don't know how many of these guys might be scared about their own underlying conditions or the underlying conditions of their families as well. I, I also, th more and more players are obviously commenting now on this return to play format, and it's been fascinating to watch. Um, Brendan Gallagher and uh, Paul Byron of the Montreal Canadiens had a really interesting uh, Zoom press conference last week where they covered a ton of different issues, uh, in f in including you know, you're, you're kind of think, – think about if you're, if you're an NHL player. You've gone to, the, to war with the NHL on any number of topics, whether it's you know, equipment or escrow or whatever. And now you're kind of having to put your faith in them to figure this stuff out for your own health and safety. As, as Brendan Gallagher said, if we do come back and play, we're going to have to put a lot of trust in the NHL to keep us safe and healthy. That is a major, major step to take. <laughs> Obviously, you go through the amount of players in our union. There are going to be guys with those fears. They have to be made comfortable to come back. I don't think there's ever been negotiations between the two sides that have gone perfectly. That is the truth. Uh, that has never happened before. 
Uh, it didn't even happen on this return to play format where there's a lot of back and forth. And it's going to be really interesting to see how many guys are in the Anton Strawman camp of being worried about their safety, being worried about their health, being worried about the health and safety of staff and, uh, and other people around the team that just don't think they should come back. And, um, and, and also don't feel comfortable putting, uh, for lack of a better phrase, their lives in the hands of Gary Bettman. I think one of the main things that has not been negotiated by players yet is what the bubble life looks like. Yeah. And that includes, do their families get to come with them? And John Tavares even came out and said, I think we want a bubble life that looks like something kind of normal, where we're not just going hotel rank, hotel rank. We get some kind of freedom or normalcy. And that's going to be something that's going to be hard because the NHL is spending millions of dollars on these tests, as I said, to ensure that they can keep this as small and contained as possible, whereas the players essentially want a little more freedom, a little more people involved, and and that could compromise the NHL's entire co- uh, operation. So those are really, really important conversations to go forward. And, you know, as exciting as it is that Gary Bettman laid out a plan, it's a cautiously optimistic plan. Indeed. Uh, now it's time for some listener mail. Uh, Waving Worm writes in, what is the impact on the ice in hot cities of not having sixteen to 20,000 people in the stands? Will that fix the heat and humidity issues of August and September? Yeah. In some ways it will. Part of the reason, and this has been explained to me many times by uh, people that work on ice crews and also by Dan Craig, the NHL ice guru, is that the doors opening and closing constantly during June during the Stanley Cup playoffs is one of the reasons why the ice is always in bad shape. Um, and obviously not just in June, but also in really hot places like Tampa and, and what have you during the season. Um, so I think it will help. I also think that without any fans in the stands, man, crank, crank that AC up. Who cares? No, you don't have to worry about somebody being like, it's too cold, uh, and watching the game. Customer service is out the window. Ain't no customers. So you can literally make the building as cold and as frigid as you want to try to maintain good ice. So I think that would fix the, only the thing- humidity. Yeah, and the only thing I would add to that is there is no doubt that ice in July and August in Vegas is different than ice in December in Montreal. (laughs) But I must say, I do believe, and this is something that was told to me by someone in the league office, ice is the least of the uh, the league's concerns right now. Oh, I thought media was the least of their concerns. Greg Vall writes in, will any teams have the sense to stop the paid honor the police military knights and maybe instead honor social workers or other under-recognized people. Um, this gets into the use of the military for cheap crowd pops. That has always been an issue in my world. The plank in my platform is that I don't appreciate the fact that teams propagate patriotism and propagate the military for the sake of, well, getting the same reaction they'd get out of the noisometer at games. Um, but I do think that your greater point is one that's well taken, and gradually over the years as someone who's consumed a lot of live hockey in my time uh, I feel like first responders have been more of a focus I mean you think about Vegas right like it wasn't simply just the cops that were on the ice after the the shootings on the strip it was everybody who ran in to the fray to help people and it was everybody at hospitals that you know addressed the the the, the victims and, and things of that nature so I think we're getting a broader scope when it comes to honoring people that are that are in you know doing public service. Uh, but I would agree that um, 
I don't think they should stop it. I, I've always felt that they should just broaden the scope of the amount of people that they honor in these situations. Because honestly, you throw a paramedic on the screen in 2020 after all everything we've been through. You throw a, a nurse on the screen in 2020 after all we've been through. You'll get the same reaction as you do an army sergeant at this point. Yeah, no, I think there's a societal shift. As we've seen with the 7 p.m. or 8 p.m., like it's happened here in Chicago. I know it's in New York and a lot of other cities when everyone is applauding the healthcare workers. Um, just a greater appreciation um, for those um, type of people and nurses and doctors and EMS workers and what have you. So I do think we're going to start seeing that infiltrate the sports realm as well. Finally, to lighten it up, Stevie, what's your favorite, best, or worst jersey or a jersey that's so bad it's good stevie nominates the infamous buffalo sabers buffa slug and i think that's a good choice i i feel like much like the fisherman jersey for the islanders that the buffa slug will have its day it will have its its moment in the sun where everybody will recognize it um best worst jersey for me is always going to be those weird ass uh third jerseys that we had in the 1990s the uh, ghostly playing card jersey for the LA Kings, the Burger King jersey, if you will, uh, has always been a favorite of mine. I always liked that jersey a lot, and I feel like um, it, it'll have its its day in the sun if it hasn't already. Uh, I personally like the Kachina jersey. I see nothing wrong with it, and I feel like it gets some uh, hate online. I've also been on the record for the listeners and readers who follow me should know this, that I don't trust my taste in jersey. I typically like what people don't like. <laughs> Um, that said, the Pooh Bear jersey from the Bruins, see nothing Amen. wrong with it. Think it's Love adorable. It. Would wear. 10 out of 10. Right. I feel like we're on, on the right side of history, but maybe on the wrong side of Boston on that one. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> that might not uh, be the worst place to be. Yeah. <laughs> here's, here's Cam Talbot. And now joining us on the line is Cam Talbot, the goaltender for the Calgary Flames, but he is also an alumnus of University of Alabama, Huntsville. And Cam, in your words, if you could just tell our listeners what happened to your alma mater's hockey program in the last couple of weeks and how did its fortunes change? Uh, about 10 or 11 days ago, the Friday before Memorial Day weekend, uh, the program was uh, effectively canceled. Uh, they they um, released a, a press release on the Friday night, and uh, by Monday they had given us uh, basically a five-day window until the uh, last Friday to come up with $750,000 to, uh, to save the program. They said if we were able to come up with that, then they would uh, allow the, uh, allow the team to, to play next year. So, um, we got a lot of big donors behind it, uh, got the community behind it and, you know, pretty much the whole hockey community, uh, throughout the, uh, the NHL and, and across North America to kind of help us out and, and bring the program back to life. And, uh, we were actually able to hit that goal and, uh, as soon as we did that, the program actually announced Friday night that the team would play again in 2020-2021. Uh, it's absolutely incredible. What, what Now that it's back, I mean, I, I know I was trying to keep up with the story. It seems to be forever changing. But, like, have guys transferred out of the program, do you know, yet? Or, or what, is, what's a good, like, what kind of team are they going to ice next season? I heard that a few guys uh, did actually already uh, receive transfers. And because the team had folded, they don't have to sit out a year. So, mm. um you know, it, it makes it uh, easier for guys to transfer and, uh, and stuff like that. I'm not sure exactly how many did and if they planned on coming back. Uh, now the program has been resurrected, but um, hopefully that, um, you know, they can still recruit enough players in time to, to field a, a competitive team next year, which I'm sure they will. 
UAH has been such a unique program in college hockey and just for hockey in North America in general. And as a kid from Canada, you know, I'd love just to know firstly how you ended up there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get that. I get asked that question quite a bit, actually. I mean, most people don't think about hockey when they think about Alabama, but um, you'd really be surprised at how uh, how good of a hockey city it really is. I mean, once you get down there and you get to know the community and, and the boosters and the alumni that, that stayed down there, I mean, it's, um, you know, a, a great little hockey city and uh, kind of a diamond in the rough. And they do a lot uh, to grow the game of hockey down there in the south. And, um, you know, a, a lot of guys like myself from Canada go down there to play. They end up, uh, you know, meeting somebody, staying down there, starting their own businesses and, and contributing to, to youth hockey down there. So not only is it just a great university program, but, um, you know, a lot of alumni stay down there and they help to grow the game throughout the state. So uh, it's, a, it's a great spot to play. What was you were you were there from 2007 to 2010 at that point like what is what is that what's the financial backing for that program what's life like are you like buying your own sticks and stuff like what what was it at that point I uh, no I like I said they have uh they at least when I was there there's nothing that uh, we couldn't get you know I got a new set of pads every year and like never had to pay for sticks and anything like that the budget was you know pretty good the only thing is uh we bust a lot of places I mean our closest road trip was about 12 hours um, so because we're so far south, there's not a, not a ton of teams close to us. So I think our closest road trip was up to Robert Morris in Pennsylvania for the most part in our conference. So, um, you know, other than flying to Minnesota and Colorado, we pretty much bust everywhere, but it made for a lot more fun with the boys on the bus. And, uh, luckily we were able to get a, a sleeper bus. So, you know, most of the older guys got their own bunk and, uh, the, the younger guys had to find a good spot on the floor and try not to get stepped on in the middle of the night. You've got to have your favorite bus story. <laughs> uh, nothing that really pops into mind. I can't remember if, if I've ever been asked that question. So <laughs> there's nothing that comes into mind really? right now. But I know uh, oh, there's been a lot of road trips and stuff like that since then. So, um, yeah, nothing that pops into my head at the moment. Mm. What, did it, what did it mean to you to see everybody rally for this program? I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's not... It, like you said, I think you and there's one other guy, right, that made the league out of out of Alabama Alabama Huntsville um, in its history. Um, to have the hockey community rally like it did for this is is got to be really inspiring. It really is. I mean, I don't think that. I mean, even we expected to really hit that goal. I don't think the university expected us to hit that goal, but we knew that we were at least going to give it a fighting chance and, and come up with as much funds as we could. But like you said, to to see the whole hockey community, I mean. Um, guys from other teams that have no ties to Alabama Huntsville that didn't even play college hockey. You know, they were um, contributing to the program, tweeting it out for us, just trying to bring as much um, as much light to the situation as possible. So, I mean, the hockey community is a small community, and, um, you know, having that extra team is, is just good for hockey and, and just gives 25 to 30 more kids the opportunity to live out their dream of playing college hockey and, uh, you know, a chance to, to move on to the professional ranks. So um, we're just you know, proud that we were able to, to come up with the funds. And obviously we thank the whole hockey community for rallying around us and helping us out. College hockey is in an interesting place because I, I feel like, the, you know, over the last maybe 10 or 15 years, there's been programs that were sort of teetering on the brink of maybe going D1 um, and, and getting involved. You look at the Big Ten, you look at the Pac-10, there's a lot of club programs that were sort of thriving. Um, are you Are you surprised there hasn't been more D1 hockey programs in non-traditional areas in the NCAA? Uh, 
You know, a little bit. I think that, uh, like you said, some of those club teams are probably just, you know, an extra donor or two away from, you know, moving up to the D1 ranks and, and joining another conference and stuff like that. So hopefully that's, you know, the case down the road. You can never have too many um, play, uh, Division One schools to go to. And, you know, obviously they need to, um, in Alabama, that's one of the biggest things that they're going to have to find a conference. So the more teams that, that join the, the league, the easier it would be to, to maybe form a new conference or something like that. So that's one of the next hurdles that we have to, to jump through with Alabama. But right now we're just excited that, you know, we still got a conference for next year and a schedule to play. Cam, I'm going to pivot a little bit to the NHL and where you're currently at. And the NHL announced its plans for its restart and 24 teams, including your Calgary Flames. But, you know, I understand besides phase two, everything needs to be negotiated now between the players and the league. What's the biggest question you have, whether it's about what life in the bubble will look like, whether your family can come, whether there'll be um, different restrictions on the ice or in the locker room? What, what do you need answered? I mean, kind of need all those things answered before we can really come to an agreement. But I mean, for me, first and foremost, I mean, I've got two young kids and, and a wife at home. So, I mean, for me, family is the biggest thing and how long we're going to have to be away from them. So whether or not they can, you know, come for extended periods of time or, or come, you know, just in short visits and stuff like that. But I know, like you said, they need to keep us in a bubble as well. So that could compromise things. So, um, I, you know, for me, that's one of the biggest questions is, you know, am I going to get to see my family between, you know, July 10th and, and September if uh, if we go deep? So um, that's going to be a huge question for us. But obviously, um, there's just so many things up in the air right now that, um, like you said, have to be answered. So I, we're still a long ways away from coming up with um, a plan for all that stuff. But at least we're working in the right direction towards that all. Dude, you're a goalie. You're going to be like in a bubble inside the bubble. They're going to like hermetically seal you in a room, man. Nothing can happen to you. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's probably a good point. I never thought of it like that. Eh? I guess there's only two of us and, you know, probably a third guy along the way. But yeah, yeah. before we get sick, you probably got four more black aces that can you can toss in the lineup. But yeah, you've got two, uh, two NHL goalies that, that have experience. So you probably want to keep them segregated as much as possible. Right, for sure. There's, and there's only so many Zamboni drivers you, that you can, you know, rely on in case all you guys get sick. So, um, yeah, Toronto's got dibs. I think Carolina's got dibs on David Ayers. So <laughs> we might have to find somebody else. Last one for me, man. And thanks for the time. I, I, you, you've spent now the last uh, couple seasons playing in both places in the Battle of Alberta, and like, I think about your your series against Winnipeg coming up, and I can't help but think. I can't wrap my brain around what the environment of these games is going to be like. Because when I think of Winnipeg in the playoffs, I think of the whiteout. And I think of that crowd. When I think of Calgary in the playoffs, I think of the sea of red. And I think of that crowd. And it's hard for me to conceive these two teams, old school Smite Division rivals, facing off in a series in an empty arena. Have you been able to kind of conceive what that's going to be like? No, it's going to be so weird. I think that's one of the biggest things that no one can really wrap their head around right now is what is it going to feel like being inside an arena when like is there going to be a national anthem still is it just going to be and you know there's not going to be anything going on around us anytime a, a goal is scored you're going to be able to hear you know basically nothing except for the guys celebrating so um nothing to to pump you up at home and nothing to you know to to battle through on the road i mean sometimes those are the best games you get the the other team's fans yelling at you and it just makes you want to play that much harder and then at home the fans are behind you and they just want want you to play that much better so 
I mean, without fans in the stands, it really takes a lot from the atmosphere and, and uh, you know, how much fun the games can be. But, I mean, we're going to have to create our own atmosphere, I guess, own momentum because it's just going to be a weird, weird feeling with no fans in the stands because, like I said, that's the best part of playoff hockey. Do you think there's any advantage for you as a goalie? Like maybe you'll be able to eavesdrop some forwards conversations or things like that. <laughs> yeah, again, that's another thing I never really thought of. These are these are great points, but I think that guys will probably be a little bit more uh, cautious about what they're saying on the ice and maybe whisper a little bit quieter. But I think the the biggest thing is you'll be able to hear all the chirps out there. So I think the cameras might have to throw a mute button on during the play and stuff like that because I don't know how much some of that stuff is going to play on TV so I don't know if they're going to have to yeah I don't know if they're going to have to put like a 10 second delay on the feed or what but uh, if the cameras are going to pick up all that stuff it might not be good yeah they should take a page out of the Jordan documentary and do like one with all the curse words in it and then one for like the families to watch I think that's the way to work yeah Yeah. (laughs) that'd be good (laughs) <laughs> All right, Cam. Hey, congratulations, man. This was some of the best news to come out in the last couple of weeks about Alabama Huntsville. La- last one for me, but finally, like, do you think is this a Band-Aid? Is this, is this a one-year reprieve, or do you think there's a chance that it could stick around for a little bit longer? I think there's a chance that we stick around a little bit longer. Um, one of the uh, one of the main sticking points that um, coming up with all that money was that the university would work with us and allow us to to build an advisory board of uh, alumni, business leaders, um, you know, major donors to the team. So people that, you know, really care about having the team in the community and people from outside the community that, you know, just want to be there to help and, and, uh, strategic partners. So, um, you know, sometimes the, you know, the athletic director and the president and stuff like that, they're, uh, they're going to work with us to, to make sure that we have everything that we need. Um, for that advisory board moving forward to to put us in the best position possible to succeed moving forward and and our job on the board is to um, you know come up with a better way to market the team hopefully new arena plans help the team get into another conference and you know just really set them up for success through uh, for the future because we know that it can be a successful program uh, if it's run properly and I think that uh, with this board it's it's going to be run the right way so I definitely don't think it's a band-aid but we still have a lot to do. Awesome stuff. Cam, thanks so much for your time, man. Good luck in the uh, in the summer playoffs if they happen. Awesome. Thank you very much, guys. Appreciate the time. <laughs> Our thanks to Cam Talbot, educating us on the plight and the resurrection of Alabama Huntsville hockey. Really cool, happy story uh, in a uh, flood of not-so-good ones. Uh, now it's time for a fa- favorite segment of the week. Bill Kessel loves hot dogs. No, he does not love to eat hot dogs. Our weekly look at sad hyperbole and strange narratives of the hockey media. Good one, Randy. Good one. It's Phil Kessel loves hot dogs. It's the department each week where we talk about the hyperbole mistakes and general misbehavior of the hockey media. John Steigerwald is one of the single worst journalists in the country, if you can call him that. Um, He is somebody who has crossed my radar many times. Uh, He is uh, out of Pittsburgh. Uh, he, he used to have a radio show. He is a columnist, I believe, for the Pittsburgh uh, Tribune r- Review. Uh, you may remember him from many years ago when I write, wrote at Puck Daddy, where he uh, wrote a story asking the question, air quotes, if Alex, Alexander Ovechkin was on steroids. Um, and it turned out that he was, uh, the whispers that he heard about that came from internet message boards. Uh, so that's always... Mm. A good launching point. Anyways, uh, John Steigerwald wrote a piece this week about Evander Kane. You heard Kane speak at the top of the show um, from uh, First Take. 
Uh, and then he he did two things in the column that are worth mentioning. One, he called out Evander Kane's credibility um, because he's Canadian and Canadians uh, don't have any right to talk about race uh, in America, despite the fact that, you know, Evander Kane has spent most of his career playing in the United States. I know Canada is way up there in the frozen north, but you would think by now word would have reached Evander that America elected a, elected a black president 12 years ago and then re-elected him four years ago. So there you go. Electing Barack Obama fixed racism. Uh, the other thing he said, the, the crux of the column was about Sidney Crosby um, saying that uh, Crosby shouldn't have to speak out on these issues facing society. Uh, and he writes... Maybe Crosby doesn't agree with Kane when he says nothing has changed. Maybe he knows he doesn't need, know enough about the subject to have a strong, credible opinion. So in other words, we're going to assign and project all these things on Sidney Crosby, therefore mandating that Sidney Crosby comment on these things and clarify whether he not actually he actually feels this way. Congratulations, John Steigerwald. You just gave Sidney Crosby a reason to speak out. Idiot. It's time for Puck Headlines. Dateline NHL.com. According to our friends at NHL.com, the top three for the Hart Trophy should be Leon Dreisaitl, Nathan McKinnon, and David Pasternak. Uh, the only other player to receive a first place vote was Connor McDavid. Uh, our ballots are going to go out at some point soon. Uh, we're going to do Trophy Tracker this week on NHL.com. I'm sorry, NHL.com. On ESPN. Whoa, are we? Are we? Yeah. And uh, so what do you think? Dreisaitl, McKinnon, Pasternak is your top three. Um, I think if I was voting, I, I think I'm leaning towards Dreisaitl. I'm going to have to look back into the numbers because I haven't watched hockey in approximately 100 million days. Um, that said, I think Panarin, especially because the Rangers technically qualified for the postseason, deserves a seat at the table and ample consideration. I might end up still being a McKinnon guy. I do like the Connor Hollybuck uh, argument for the heart. I love uh, how you pronounce his name. That's the argument. That's what I would vote for. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I'm from Jersey. I'm allowed to mispronounce whatever I want. Uh, but Panarin's a real Same. tough one. It's a really, really interesting race. And uh, I have I have time for Dreisaitl. I very much do. You do? I also, have, mm-hmm. I also have time for, you know, Nathan McKinnon finishing over 40 points more than the next guy on his team. Uh, Dateline Taylor Hall. That, of course, was the Taylor Hall argument when he won the Hart Trophy is how many more points he had than the next guy on his team. Uh, Taylor Hall on his free agency uh, and the season having been uh, stopped for a, a pandemic. It's a variable for sure, but I think you look around the world and there's people in much tougher spots than I am. I mean, maybe. I mean, like Braden Holtby, maybe. He's also a UFA. He's in a pretty tough spot. Oh, he probably means like society as a whole it's a good point uh taylor hall is a free agent i you know i've been trying to noodle this through and i still don't know where he's going to end up and i do wonder if at the end of the day he's just going to have to bite the bullet and take one of them short-term deals that he says he doesn't want to take i think so many players are going to have to i think so many people had their lives planned more generally than hockey over the next five ten years and are like hold up we kind of need to take this one day at a time so yeah I would not be shocked if we see Taylor Hall in a one or two year deal with a, with a nice cap hit, but a one or yeah. two year deal. Indeed. Dateline Angela Ruggiero. The Hockey Hall of Famer is going to be a coach in the new three on three, three ice. Sounds like a boy band. Uh, hockey league that is coming out next summer. 
She spoke to us at ESPN and said it is time to have more women in the front office and more women on the GM side of things. She says, again, hockey's hockey. It's shocking, to be honest, that we haven't had more. It behooves the hockey community when we're trying to recruit more female fans, more female players, to have more of that voice at the table. It It is absolutely kind of stunning to think that, like, if you look at all of the Team Canada alumni and all of the Team USA alumni, and they've been going to the Olympics since 1998, how none of them have really ever gotten a shot at an NHL front office in any serious capacity. Yeah. No, when I saw Angelo Ruggiero was connected to this three ice or whatever we were calling this league, um, I was just curious. I was like, why is she getting involved with this? Why not an NHL team? Why not the league? So I'm so glad you talked to her and got this answer. Um, and I think it's not just front office. I like to see women in all aspects of men's hockey. And I know, like, one great example is Stephen Walkham, who's the head of officiating for the NHL, is constantly, constantly telling me how he's recruiting former elite-level women's hockey players to become refs because he thinks it would be a great addition to the game. So, mm. Finally, oh, oh, we have two more, actually. Uh, Dateline, uh, how to build the perfect player. Our project is called How to Build a Perfect Player, or some such. Uh, we, You did uh, forwards. And I did goalies. We, we Frankensteined a bunch of players and tried to build the quintessential uh, player. What was, what would you think was the biggest challenge in, in putting that thing together? I don't know if it's a big challenge, but, you know, I don't think anyone who's from Pittsburgh is going to really like this episode of the show. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It did find me interesting. And look, I pulled a couple assistant coaches that I know. I know a scout. I asked him to give me his answers. And like Sidney Crosby's name didn't come up for any singular attribute. Now he is one of the top five players in the league currently, probably the best player of the last two decades, decade. But any single attribute he has doesn't necessarily fit the ideal NHL player of today. It's more of just the composite Sidney Crosby. So I found that really interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, the only thing I could think of as far as his, like his, his, his vision, but then you could also go to Connor for that. His backhand, I think, would be one. I don't know if that was a category or not. I forget if it was. The goalie thing was tough because I I I, pull, I pulled a, a I pulled a few people that I know in the goalie community, uh, including Mike McKenna, including um, uh, Kevin Woodley, and a few others. And I think I got some good stuff, but like, I'm not a goalie, and I feel like if you're not if you're not a goalie, it's like trying to talk to a pitcher when you don't know how to pitch. Like it's it's a very specific science. A very specific skill. So I, I always find it enlightening. When I wrote my book, um, Take Your Eye Off the Puck, the goalie section was my favorite section because I literally didn't know anything about the nuances of the position. So, uh, so hopefully we got it right. It was a fun, it was a fun exercise. Uh, shout out to, uh, to Ben, our boy, for, um, for coming up with the idea. Um, finally, Dateline, what me and Emily are watching or reading. Huh. You know, listening to or whatever. What are you into these days? You're watching The Americans? Start of the Americans. Six episodes in. I like it. It's fine. It's good. I'm, I'm I think a big I like Math- more. I'm a big Matthew Reese fan. I think Matthew Reese yeah. um, is an incredible actor. I'm looking forward to his Perry Mason reboot on HBO. I also think that... Uh, did you watch Girls? I forget. Did you watch Girls when it was on? I'm a millennial woman, obviously. So I know the episode with Patrick Wilson, where he, she spends the day with yeah. him, gets put over as being like the best one. But that bottle episode where she goes to meet Matthew Reese, where he's the... Um, sexual uh, harassing author, yeah, oh, author, yes, yes, yeah, was inc- I thought I thought that that was 
I think my favorite episode of that show was just like how insanely intense it was and, and he sort of pulled it all together as this sort of Lucifer figure. But anyway, he's a really good actor. So I, I actually have never seen the Americans all the way through. So I might have to take you up on that and, and do that. What else are you doing? Anything, you read anything? I'm reading The Great Believers, which is a, are a book about the AIDS crisis, and it takes place both in Chicago and Paris. Um, mm. But I haven't made it very far. But I'm going on vacation next week, so I intend to finish you, that damn book. You're going to make a lot, a lot of headway in that book. Um, I, I'm reading a book called Wild and Crazy Guys. I believe that's the name of it. It's about uh, comedians in the 1980s and sort of that movement the SNL comedians, Eddie Murphy, things like that, um, which I'm, I'm, I'm getting into a little bit, and it's 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 good so far. And then I re- I, I watched a uh, did I talk about the last arcade on this show? I don't think I did. Um, mm-hmm. Incredible documentary on Amazon um, Prime called The Last Arcade. It's about an arcade in Chinatown in New York, one of the last true coin op arcades, not a family fun place, not a barcade. Just you go in and you play video games kind of spot uh, that closed down. And it's about that culture, arcade culture in New York, and it's about the cult of people that surrounded the arcade. And it's also about how the arcade did eventually reopen as an aforementioned family fun center and how it it was sort of a criticism of that that nature of, of, of arcades. So if you dig arcades, if you're somebody used to put the coin on the machine to get the next game in Mortal Kombat like I did – um, it's definitely worth checking out if you get a chance. Anyway, good lord, if you stuck with us this long, thanks. It's an elephantine episode of ESPN and Ice. Uh, I'm Greg Wyshynski. You can read my column, The Wishlist, on Thursdays. My other podcasts, plural, are Puck Soup, and then on the Puck Soup Patreon, of course, Emily's favorite podcast that she's never appeared on, Mise en Pod, the Top Chef podcast. Indeed Go team. it is. Go Team Kevin. Are you Team Kevin? I'm, I'm still Team Gregory. Uh, they're both they're both on my team. They're both on my my fantasy mm. team. So either one is fine by me. Gregory will always have my vote for revolutionizing restaurant wars um, and pulling a full Bill Belichick and just adopting <laughs> role players. I'm Emily Kaplan on Twitter at Emily M Kaplan. You won't hear from me for a couple of days, and that's going to be fine. Bye. 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 This has been ESPN on Ice with Wyshynski and Kaplan. Subscribe to the show in the ESPN app or Apple Podcasts.